the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network presents Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Each week, Joan brings you news from inside the Vatican and the church around the world, as well as interviews and answers to your questions. Now, here's the host of Vatican Insider, Joan Lewis. Welcome back to Vatican Insider and to another special I've prepared on a much-loved, very celebrated Italian shrine. We will actually take a mini-pilgrimage to Our Lady of the Rosary of Pompeii, a half-hour south of Naples, which has a beautiful and even touching story. It's a shrine that has a special place in my heart. Now I'm going to start the story of the shrine with a quote from the man who founded Our Lady of the Rosary of Pompeii. Quote, With the boldness of desperation, I lifted my face and hands to the Heavenly Virgin and cried, If it be true that you promised St. Dominic that whoever spreads the rosary will be saved, I will be saved, because I will not leave Pompeii until I have spread your rosary. Those are the words of Blessed Bartolo Longo said in Pompeii, Italy, in October 1872. Now, let's go back a bit in time for the story of Blessed Bartolo and the Shrine of Our Lady of the Rosary of Pompeii. At 1 p.m. on August 24, 79 B.C., Mount Vesuvius rumbled, roared, and then erupted, heaving its molten insides onto the populace of Pompeii and burying the ancient city. What remained was only a ghostly silence of a once-flourishing center. The new Pompeii would arise 1,796 years later. Called the Miracle City by its inhabitants, Pompeii as we know it today is the result of that promise made by Bartolo Longo, a lawyer and devout layman, a promise that became a reality in 1875 when work began on the construction of the church dedicated to Our Lady of the Rosary. The church and the buildings housing the charitable works associated with it eventually led to the birth of the city, the new Pompeii. Bartolo Longo was born in 1841 near Brindisi on Italy's Adriatic coast. Those who knew him as a young man described him as cordial, easygoing, of a lively intelligence, and devoted to the church. However, his university years were to be troubled ones, as anti-clerical sentiments were running strong in newly unified Italy. Prodded by anti-church liberals, Bartolo tested the waters, if you will, of spiritism, and he went through a crisis in his faith. Aided by two good friends, Professor Vincenzo Pepe and the learned Dominican father Alberto Radente, he not only rediscovered his faith, but renounced his legal career and devoted himself to works of charity and religious studies. Providence brought Bartolo Longo to the little town of Pompeii, a half hour south of Naples, in 1872, where a widow and the mother of five, the Countess Mariana de Fusco, asked him to administer her property. Struck by the human and religious poverty of the peasants of the area, Bartolo anguished over how he could help them better their lives. Following a divine inspiration, he decided to devote himself to teaching the catechism and spreading devotion to the rosary, remembering Father Radente's words, If you are looking for salvation, propagate the rosary. It is the promise of Mary. He who propagates the rosary shall be saved. For three years, Bartolo Longo organized yearly festivals in the fall to bring the people together for catechesis and to pray the rosary. 
This could be best achieved, he felt, if the people had a proper church with an image of Our Lady of the Rosary as the focal point. Thus, in 1875, he began searching the stores of Naples, hoping to have one in time for that year's concluding ceremonies on November 13th. The ever-faithful and supportive Father Rodente recalled that years earlier he had bought such an image which he had entrusted to Sister Maria Conchetta of the Conservatory of the Rosary at Porta Medina. Bartolo hurried to Porta Medina, asked for the painting, and was horrified when he saw how ugly it was and how much in need of repair. He would later write, Dear me, I felt a tightening around my heart as soon as I set eyes on it. When Countess de Fusco saw the painting of the Virgin with the Child Jesus handing rosaries to St. Dominic and St. Rose of Lima, she said, It seems to have been made specifically to discourage devotion. To make matters worse, the size of the painting precluded Bartolo taking it to Pompeii on the train. The only other possible form of transportation was through a wagoneer who weekly transported a load of manure to Pompeii. So the wagon it was to be. The painting was touched up for the November 13th ceremony and has since been restored three times, during which St. Rose was changed to St. Catherine of Siena. Today, the painting hangs above the main altar of the basilica, beckoning to several million pilgrims annually, as strongly as it once repulsed Bartolo Longo and his loyal supporters. By 1855, some 940 cures and miracles were ascribed to Our Lady of the Rosary of Pompeii. The number well exceeds that today, as witnessed by the countless ex-votos lining the walls of the shrine and adjacent buildings. On my first visit, as I lingered to study several hundred of the votive offerings, the ex-voto, a catechesis to Mary's intercession, I realized that here was the true history of the shrine. A single man's love for the rosary, transmitted to generations of faithful. He loved, they believed, and together they built what is today one of the preeminent Marian shrines in the world. Each year on May 8th and on the first Sunday of October, thousands of faithful gather at the shrine for the Feast of the Supplication, to petition favors, and to offer thanksgiving for favors received. In fact, most if not all of the plaques of thanksgiving that line the walls and halls and corridors of this shrine have the letters PGR on them, per grazie ricevute, for favors received, and this is what I referred to earlier as ex votos. The neoclassical pontifical shrine and basilica of Our Lady of the Rosary, in all of its frescoed marble splendor, was dedicated in 1891, 15 years after Bartolo began to collect pennies from the peasants to build this citadel to Mary. But our devoted lawyer felt that this monument would be incomplete if works of charity were not part of it, and so, over the years, until his death in 1926, Bartolo founded homes for orphan girls, for the sons of prisoners, and later orphaned boys. Today, this monumental complex, the pulsating heart of the new Pompeii, includes administrative offices, a chapel for confessions, a school, a home for elderly women, and the offices of the monthly publication, The Rosary and the New Pompeii, it began in 1884. It also houses the living quarters and offices of the prelate of Pompeii and the shrine director. 
On my first visit to the shrine a number of years ago, I had a long conversation with the then director, Monsignor Pietro Gaggiano, who was also my guide to the shrine. It was a Sunday morning and after Mass we began our tour. At the end of our visit, Monsignor Gaggiano left his office for a minute, and when he came back, he asked me if I had lunch plans. I said I had nothing special planned, probably just someplace near the shrine, and he said that Archbishop Francesco Tobi, the prelate of the shrine and territorial prelature, wanted to invite me for lunch. It was a great lunch with marvelous conversation. If I had a hundred questions about the shrine, Archbishop Topi had two hundred questions about the Pope, the Vatican, the press office, and any interesting tidbits I could give him. After lunch, I had a really special treat when Monsignor and the Archbishop took me to one of the rooms that Pope John Paul had been to during his 1979 visit. Archbishop Topi walked to an immense piece of furniture, opened at the top drawer and took out a very large book the Shrine's VIP guest book. He proudly opened it to John Paul's signature, and then he showed me a few more famous names, and then opened to a blank page and asked me to sign the book. I said, in no way did I feel worthy to be part of such an important volume. And he said, but we are all children of God. So my signature has now been immortalized in Pompeii. The devotion of this wonderful Capuchin Archbishop and Monsignor Gaggiano to the shrine in Bartolo Longo was palpable as they spoke reverently of his exemplary life and emphasized the fact it was a layperson who accomplished the, quote, miracle of Pompeii, who founded the still-flourishing works of charity, and who in 1897 founded the Dominican Sisters of the Holy Rosary of Pompeii. Both of them also pointed with pride to Pope John Paul's 1979 visit to the shrine and to the tomb of the man he would beatify the following year. In fact, Blessed Bartolo Longo is buried beneath the image he had wished. We spoke of miracles and of saints. I asked if it was harder today in a fast-paced secular world with temptations on every corner to become a saint. Archbishop Topi answered, Every time has its trials and its temptations, and every time has its saints. We are conditioned by the times in which we live, and we adjust to meet those times and face up to those trials. Now a little postscriptum. On April 2, 2014, exactly seven years to the day of his death, the cause for canonization for Archbishop Tolpe was opened. The current prelate of the Shrine of Our Lady of the Rosary of Pompeii, as I said earlier, Archbishop Tommaso Caputo, having asked the opinion of the other bishops of the Campana region, and having obtained the nulla osta, nothing's in the way, of the Congregation for the Causes of Saints, decreed the introduction of the cause. The request was put forth by Father Carlo Coloni, OFM Cap, Postulator General of the Cause of Beatification of Archbishop Topi. And another postscriptum. In April 2014, Monsignor Gaggiano, former administrator of the shrine, was named rector of the local seminary. He was a doctor of the church, a Carmelite, and one of the most famous mystics of all time. Matthew Bunsen and the doctors of the church. St. John of the Cross wanted to help all Christians to become saints. One of his most important teachings was to encourage us all to learn how to love. Where there is no love, he said, put love, and you will find love. He died in 1591. 
To find out more about the Doctors of the Church, visit EWTN.com and click on Catholicism. Faith is a precious gift from God. As the largest religious media network in the world, EWTN has an important role in educating others about our Catholic faith and spreading the good news of salvation. We invite you to explore our numerous pages of historical faith documents, prayers, teachings, and other current issues in Catholicism today. Visit EWTN.com and click Catholicism. EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. This is a Messy Family Minute with Mike and Alicia Hernan. Lenten prayers with children look very different than a religious community or a couple praying by themselves. Kids make praying interesting, to say the least. (laughs) Though celebrating Lent takes on a different character when you have children, it still can be a blessed and grace-filled season for all of you. We'd like to encourage you to create an environment in your home that will teach your children just as effectively as any words you may say. This is one of the many joys of being Catholic. We have so many things that our children can see, smell, taste, and touch that communicate the pillars and truths of our faith. Here are a few ideas. Purchase Stations of the Cross cards for your home and post them on the wall so you can walk the way of the cross in your home. On Fridays, eating a simple meal of beans and rice or bread and cheese is a great way to introduce children to the idea of fasting. Make an altar with a crucifix, a crown of thorns, and a purple cloth to remind children daily of this penitential season. For more ideas on celebrating Lent, visit us at MessyFamilyMinute.org. Welcome back to Vatican Insider. Here's Joan Lewis. Welcome to Vatican Insider as we continue on our Lenten journey. In fact, this week I've prepared a very special program for you in what is normally the interview segment. We'll go on a mini pilgrimage of sorts as we visit the Lenten Station Churches in Rome. They are very special churches that tell a beautiful story over the 40 days of Lent, a story found only in Rome. Every year on Ash Wednesday and the start of Lent, Popes process from the Benedictine Church of Sant'Anselmo on the Aventine Hill to the nearby Dominican Basilica of Santa Sabina, thus renewing a centuries-old Roman tradition of celebrating Mass at what are known here as Lenten Station or Stational Churches. At Sant'Anselmo, there's always a moment of prayer, followed by the penitential procession to the Basilica of Santa Sabina. Traditionally joining the Pope in this procession are cardinals, archbishops, bishops, the Benedictine monks of Sant'Anselmo, the Dominican fathers of Santa Sabina, and lay faithful. In Santa Sabina, the Holy Father then presides at Mass, and after his homily, there's the rite of the blessing and imposition of ashes. In conclusion, the Pope imparts his apostolic blessing. This year, 2021, because of concerns of contagion, if crowds gathered for this traditional event, thus potentially spreading the virus, no afternoon procession was scheduled. Rather, at 9.30 in the morning, Pope Francis presided at Mass and the distribution of ashes at the altar of the chair in St. Peter's Basilica in the presence of 33 cardinals and about 100 faithful. Another change prompted by COVID-19 came in a January 12 note from the Congregation for Divine Worship that detailed how ashes were to be distributed. Priests will bless the ashes, sprinkle them with holy water, and say one of two formulas, repent and believe in the gospel, or remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
sanitizing his hands and wearing a mask. A priest will then silently sprinkle ashes on the head of each faithful, not on foreheads, as is traditional in a few countries. And now a look at Rome's station church tradition and the first church, Santa Sabina. The elegant Aventine neighborhood overlooks the Circus Maximus and the Baths of Caracalla. Situated on the Aventine's Piazza Pietro di Liria, the Basilica of Santa Sabina, chronologically the first Lenten station church, was established at the start of the 5th century by a priest named Peter, who was from Illyria. In 1222, Pope Honorius III gave the adjacent ancient turreted palace of the Crescenzi family to the Dominicans as a monastery. And in fact, over the years, both Saints Dominic and Thomas Aquinas lived here. Modifications and additions in the 16th century basilica altered its appearance. In the early 1900s, the church was restored to its original design. It has three aisles and 24 fluted Corinthian columns. Little is left of the original mosaics. In the middle of the nave is the mosaic tombstone dedicated to Munoz de Zamora, the master general of the Dominicans and a biographer of St. Dominic. Adjacent to the church is the cloister, built by St. Dominic in 1220 and restored between 1936 and 1939. The practice of station churches had its origins in the first centuries of Christianity, when most of the early popes celebrated the liturgy on special days at special churches in the Eternal City. This eventually became principally a Lenten devotion. In his liturgical reform, Pope St. Gregory the Great, who reigned from 590 to 604, established a station church for each day of Lent thus making the whole season a pilgrimage on the path to conversion while preparing for Easter. The first station church every year, as I said, is always Santa Sabina, where the Pope celebrates Ash Wednesday Mass. Now, in the early days of the church, Lent was a time in which catechumens began their journey of faith and conversion prior to receiving baptism. The word station is associated with two Latin words, stare, meaning to stand, and stasio, meaning standing still or a stationary place. In early times, the celebrations began with clergy and congregation gathering at one spot called the collecta and processing to the station church, the stasio, while reciting litanies and other prayers. The Eucharist was then celebrated at the station church. Unfortunately, the custom began to fall into disuse, and it stopped when the papacy was in Avignon from 1309 to 1377. It was revived by St. John the Twenty-Third in 1959. The 7 a.m. Masses in English at a different church each day in Rome have become a gathering spot for English-speaking Catholics. Any given day of Lent will find priests, Roman seminarians, especially those at NAC, the Pontifical North American College, religious from around Rome, embassy personnel, often including ambassadors, some of whom speak English only as a second or third language, university students, and other members of the laity all gather together to celebrate the Eucharist. Masses in other languages, including German, Latin, and Italian, are celebrated at other times in the station churches. Not long after Pope St. John XXIII revived this custom, the rector, staff, and seminarians of the Pontifical North American College began to frequent the Lenten Station churches, attending Mass each morning at 7 in English 
in the assigned church of the day. And now, all these years later, they still observe this Lenten custom, and on most days walk to the church from the college on Janiculum Hill. On some days, that's an arduous undertaking and means a very early wake-up alarm. In addition to the station churches, a long-standing Roman custom is to visit the four major or papal basilicas, St. Peter's, St. John Lateran, St. Mary Major, and St. Paul's Outside the Walls, in addition to three more important basilicas in what is commonly called the Seven Church Walk. The other three basilicas are Holy Cross in Jerusalem, St. Lawrence Outside the Walls, also known as St. Lawrence Alverano, and St. Sebastian. The Seven Church Walk is traditionally done on the Wednesday of Holy Week. Now, most of the 40 station churches visited during Lent get spruced up for the special morning masses, and relics, often hidden from the public view, may be brought out for veneration by the faithful. By the way, 25 of the 40 station churches were once the homes of Romans who converted to Christianity. Now, some of the relics you'll be able to see if you follow the station churches in Rome include St. Augustine or San Augustino in Campo Marzio. Above the main altar, there's an image of a Byzantine Madonna that came from the Church of Santa Sofia in Constantinople, modern Istanbul. In the chapel of St. Monica, we find the remains of St. Monica, the mother of Augustine. The relics of many other saints are found below the main altar and near other altars. Santa Cecilia, St. Cecilia in Trastevere. The body of St. Cecilia lies in the crypt. Sarcophagi with the bodies of Saints Valerian, Tiburcio, and Massima are found here, as is a sarcophagus with the bodies of Saints Pope Lucio I and Urban. The Church of San Clemente run by the Irish Dominicans. Now here we are looking at millennia-old church history. The present basilica built just before the year 1100, during the height of the Middle Ages. And then there's beneath the present basilica is a 4th century basilica that had been converted out of the home of a Roman nobleman, part of which had in the 1st century briefly served as an early church. The church was built over the home of Pope St. Clement III Pope after St. Peter and his relics are found beneath the main altar, along with an arm of St. Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch. The cross in the center of the mosaic in the apse contains fragments of the true cross. In the underground part of the church is the sepulcher of St. Cyril, Apostle to the Slavs, where his relics are in the upper church in a chapel on the right side. Now, if we go to the church of San Marcello, the remains of Pope St. Marcello are in an urn beneath the main altar. In the fourth chapel on the left, in an urn in the altar, are the relics of Saints Felicity and her presumed seven sons. In the chapel of the crucifix are relics of, among others, Saint Longinus, whose sword pierced the side of Christ at the crucifixion. Relics of many other saints are in the church. In the small church of Santa Maria in Violata, tradition says St. Peter and Paul and the evangelist, Saints John and Luke, at one point spent time in a residence here, and that St. Paul wrote his letters to the Hebrew, and St. Luke, the Acts of the Apostles. In the church of San Pietro in Vincoli, St. Peter's in Chains, in a beautiful glass and brass reliquary, are the chains that bound St. Peter when he was in prison. Now, these are just a few of the great treasures you will find as you live the Lenten Station Church's pilgrimage. Now, kind of a little sidebar. 
In 2012, there was an interesting tidbit about the Holy Father. For the first time, Lent was featured in daily messages offered by Benedict XVI on Twitter in six languages. The messages came via at pope to you vatican as the official papal Twitter account, at Pontifex, was not launched until December 12th of that year. The 40-day pilgrimage of visiting the Lenten stational churches include visits to other prominent Roman churches and basilicas, including Saints John and Paul, the Holy Apostles, San Clemente, which we said, Santa Cecilia, Santa Maria and Trastevere, Saints Cosmas and Damian, and Saint Mark, San Marco, to name but a few. Now, a few years back, during his 11-year tenure as rector of the Pontifical North American College, Monsignor James Cecchio, now Bishop Cecchio of Metuchen in New Jersey, spoke to us about the station churches. He said one of the blessings of spending Lent in Rome and at the Pontifical North American College is that we are able to participate in the ancient tradition of the Lenten stational churches. The early Christians began to venerate the places of burial or death of the early martyrs, and eventually this led to the custom of having processions to these sacred sites. By the 4th century, historians tell us, each day during Lent the Bishop of Rome would visit a different church in the city of Rome to venerate the saints and celebrate Mass with the local faithful. This tradition endured for centuries. During the past few decades, the North American College has continued this tradition as each day of Lent, the seminarians and priests are offered the opportunity to go on pilgrimage early in the morning to one of the churches of Rome for veneration of the saints in Holy Mass, and many lay faithful, other priests, sisters, and seminarians from the city join us too. Monsignor Cecchio added that for us, as we continue on the path of our priestly formation as seminarians or ongoing formation as priests, we are reminded as we visit these churches honoring the different saints who have gone before us that each one of us, in addition to the call to priesthood, needs to examine our response of the call to be saints, the universal call to holiness. After all, we all want to be good and loving priests of Jesus Christ for service of his church, but ultimately we desire to spend eternal life with him in heaven. We need to become saints. Visiting the saints inspires us to answer this call wholeheartedly. Each day in Lent, said Monsignor Cecchio, be assured that we pilgrims here in Rome will carry the intentions of our families and friends with us to the station churches and the sites of the early martyrs and saints. You too can participate in a station church pilgrimage. You can attend Mass in Rome at the designated church if you're here during Lent, and if you're not in Rome, you can join the staff and seminarians of the North American College each day on their Lenten pilgrimage by going to www.pnac.org. Each day you will find information on and the history of the day's station church. And if you're in Rome, there's directions on how to get to that church. Well, God bless. I hope you have a beautiful and meaningful Lent. For more information on these stories or to check out Joan's blog and to ask her a question, go to EWTN.com. That's EWTN.com. Thanks for listening to Vatican Insider on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.